successfully, obviously, defending my doctoral dissertation at the Angelica in Rome, you know, on, on Friday the 13th, <laughs> in 19, uh, 1980, uh, November 1987. And uh, then I was, you know, obviously, I was relieved, celebrating, so forth. The following Monday, um, so they, they moved the, the, the feast of, of St. Albert the Great to Monday, but he's a great Dominican saint, so I just remember celebrating joyfully. <laughs> The Angelica on, on this great feast day. And he's a great, a great, uh, a great saint in so many ways. You know, a great, uh, um, you know, a saint who shows us what what Catholic really means. Catholic means, uh, you know, we take in all of reality. You know, and so every every sphere of human inquiry. You know, whether it's medicine, he was into medicine. He was into biology. He was into, um, um, you know, all sorts of sciences and, and literature and just about everything. He's a true Renaissance man. Anyway, so he's, he's certainly the great. Um, and speaking of great, uh, you did overall, you did a great job on the, uh, on the midterm. Um, the guys who physically took it, yours were the easiest <laughs> to grade because I had them in front of me. So you want to just give these out? Um, Dr. Anthony. Dr. Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, uh, this is my first experience of grading exams online. I have to apologize. I've never been in a pandemic before, um, and uh, you know I don't know the <laughs> the rules. But um, I graded everything, and um, they. But what that means, I, um, I, it's going to show if you if you have are, are auditing this, uh, if you're a deacon candidate who's auditing this, you're um, you're going to get a your final grade. Is going to be a you know a P or a whatever it is for your P plus whatever it is. But you may see a grade, and, and let me know if this is what happens. You may see a grade on Popoli. You may see a number, a regular number letter grade. Uh, that won't be your final grade that's submitted to the registrar. It's just you know kind of work in progress. Okay, so don't get uh, upset when you see that. You shouldn't. As a matter of fact, some of you guys who are auditors, uh, why don't you take this for credit? You know, because we don't have the college. Right. Oh, you don't have the college? Yeah. Oh, oh, it's too bad. Because yeah. some of you guys who are auditing are doing really well, you know? So um, anybody who has problems with it, you know, I talked to some people about particular problems they had. You can talk to me later. We'll work something out. So don't, don't anybody panic about anything. This is just the first the first stage, okay? So um, well, well, let's, uh, let's go over the... Uh, Okay. Father, will you be sending us our, our uh, written format if we took it on Popular? You you go to Popoli, and there and as I said, it posted a grade there. Uh, but also, right, but 
But what about our results that we wrote? Yeah, it also um, said, now, again, you know, I apologize, I've never been in a pandemic before. Uh, I don't know how to, uh, you know, this is my first time doing this. But um, when I was grading, it's an odd way of grading. Um, it, it gives you it gives it to you by question, you know. So like five guys uh, say, I forget how many guys, so say there are five guys who are, who are taking the, the, the exam online. Um, it'll give it to me question by question. So question number one, whatever it is, it'll give me the question, and then it'll give the, the five guys with their answers. You know? So for each one, uh, you know, I, I, I graded each of the answers the way the way they uh, the way they provided for you. So you give um, it, it's not terribly nuanced the grades. It's it's uh, you know um, it's by quarter, so it's it's, it's zero, 25 percent, 50 percent, 75 percent, 100 percent for each uh, question. Uh, there's a room for comments. I didn't have too many comments for most of you because most of the questions are pretty obvious. So occasional comments there. So. Uh, how you access that, I, I'm not sure, um, but uh, you should be able to ex ac access your uh, your test on Popolo. Okay. Uh, otherwise, why would they have me doing this? You know. So, um, but I, I, you won't take a test on Popolo before, haven't you? No, this was the first time. Yeah. Because in fact, Father, it's, it's probably pretty important for you to know that when we're taking the test on Populi, we can only see one line of our response. When we start typing, yeah. as it goes to the end of the page, yeah. it just keeps going and we can't see anything that we typed before. But so there's a, really no way to review your question. Yeah, it's you go back to the very beginning and scroll through it's, it again. It's very, very unusual. So so yeah. that that's a function of whoever uploaded the template. Wait, wait, hang on a second. That's a function of whoever uploaded the template to take the test. They yeah. didn't make the text box big enough. They have wow. to actually. So when we did this for the medical students, if it was a short answer or an essay test, the the text box was large. This was a small rectangular box that, as you typed, essentially what was happening was you were you were typing, you got to the maybe five or six words. And then it went off to the right, and you oh, couldn't yeah. go back and you know and reread what you yeah. were actually writing. So, um, which was problematic in some of the cases because it was it was more than a sentence that you had to put down. Yeah. Sure. But but the but all they would have to do is upload a different template or just change the size of the text box. Oh, okay. That's really all they need to do. All right. Yeah, so it's yeah but it's too late now. Yeah, but I'm just saying, for, you know, for further for future reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I remember um, la last year, my my own uh, uh, parish manager was, was taking. Uh, uh, she she's also she's working on her MA in this program, and she uh, remember one day she was taking uh, a test, and it was a midterm or final exam, and it was the same thing, it was timed and everything, and she she said it was pretty straightforward. She didn't have any problems with it. You know? So um, so again, you know, we'll uh, I'll bring all of these. Uh, Observations, uh, complaints, uh, etc. You know, um, and I'm sure as the pandemic goes on for years and years and years, we'll get better and better at this. <laughs> no, Joe's in charge. Take Joe's care of it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. Um, so the exam itself, um, as I said, most of you, most of you did did pretty decently on the exam. Um, 
the uh, the first question: What is the difference between a, a, a rescript and a prescript? Interesting enough, um, um, a number of you got this half right. Mm -hmm. Guys seem to know what a, a rescript was. They didn't seem to know what a prescript was. I hope you never have to know what a prescript is, but you better, <laughs> <laughs> just in case it happens, you should be aware of what it is. So, um, what is a rescript? It's Canon 59. Well, I'll read it to you. <laughs> Prescript is an administrative act issued in writing by a competent executive authority, but which, uh, which of its very nature, a privilege, dispensation, or other favor is granted at someone's uh, request. Uh, that's the point. It's an administrative act in writing, but it grants a favor. So a rescript, a couple of you remembered I said, rescript is, is a happy thing, uh, prescript is a bad thing, but you didn't, but you didn't remember why. Uh, a rescript is a happy thing because it, it gives you the favor that you asked. Uh, a prescript, uh, on the other hand, you don't want to get a prescript. Uh, a prescript means you're in trouble. That's what it means, okay? It means you're in trouble. Canon 49 for a prescript. A singular pre, uh, for a, um, uh, yeah, pre, uh, a prescript. Uh, a singular prescript precept is a decree by which an obligation is directly and lawfully imposed on a specific person or persons uh, to do or to admit something, especially in order to urge the observance of a law. That's the, uh, that's the difference between the two of you. Um, then uh, the second one the, um, has to do with uh, judicial power. And it, it asks the question, uh, can a tribunal judge who has judicial power issue a general executory decree? The answer to that? If you have yes. judicial power, can you issue an executory decree? No. 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 Right? An executory decree is issued by someone who has what kind of power? Executive. Executive power. Right? Judicial. Uh, no pressure. A tribunal judge normally doesn't have that power. Now, Ken 1108, most, most of you got this. I was pleased. If you got this right, pat yourself on your back. You're well on your way to getting yourself ordained. Okay? Uh, this is, if you didn't understand, if you didn't get it, uh, this is a hurdle you must overcome. And I was given my marching orders when I came here because I told you about uh, priests who got themselves into trouble over this. Okay? So, Ken 1108. And all you need to answer this is what is in front of you. You know? Um, Somebody uh, uh, said, well, this has to do with, with, with marriage and, uh, and annulments and all this stuff. And so he started going all over the code. Now, right away, if, if you went out of book one or book two to answer the question, you knew, I told you beforehand, you know you're in trouble. Okay? All the information you need is right in front of you. All you need to know about Canon 1108 is what, it, is what I state right here, which is Canon 1108 states that a marriage is valid only if contracted in the presence of a Catholic bishop, priest, or deacon with certain rare exceptions. It is an ecclesiastical law. Okay. With this in mind, consider the following scenario. John is a baptized Lutheran, who is married to a woman who is also a baptized Lutheran. The wedding took place in front of a Lutheran minister in a Lutheran church. The couple subsequently divorced. Now John has met a baptized Catholic woman and wants to marry her. Deacon Harry, who is assigned to the local Roman Catholic parish, tells John that he does not need an annulment because his marriage 
was not contracted in front of a priest or deacon and is therefore invalid. Is Deacon Harry correct? So the uh, Canon 1108, as I quoted to you, you don't have to look it up because I tell you what it says. Canon 1108 says, marriage is valid only if contracted in the presence of a Catholic bishop, priest, or deacon with certain rare exceptions. Uh, deacon Harry says that um, John did not contract his marriage in front of a priest or deacon and is therefore invalid. That's all you need to know. Okay. Is Deacon Harry correct? No. No, why? Because they because by divine law those those two Lutherans are still because they're Christians, baptized Christians, they are they are still married in the eyes of God. Right. Canon eleven oh eight all you needed to know uh, to answer the question is is the second sentence. It is five words. It is an ecclesiastical law. As soon as I say that, bells should go off in your in your head because that means it applies to whom? Only Catholics. Catholics. Only Catholics. So this marriage that we're talking about between two non-Catholics, does it apply to them? No. No. All right. Therefore, their marriage is valid. All right. We're, it's not invalid by a Catholic ecclesiastical law. It's valid. Okay. And if they have a valid marriage, therefore, uh, and this this you don't need to know from canon law. You need to know this uh, from natural law and from uh, having gotten at least past first grade. Uh, if they're if they're already married, <laughs> validly, can they can they now marry? Can they now get can he, can they get divorced and marry somebody else? No. No. All right. So, okay. That's a very very important scenario to understand. Um, it's very simple, but for some reason there is a mental block that a lot of people have. A lot of clerics. You know, uh, those of you who got this wrong, you're not the only ones who have a mental block. Uh, and that's why we had, uh, I told you about the, we had two cases um, soon before I came here. Uh, there are terrible situations where a priest did not understand this law. And he, uh, and he, he went ahead and there was somebody, a non-Catholic who had been married to a non-Catholic before, got divorced. The priest did nothing about it. And then um, he, he, he married a Catholic or wanted to marry a Catholic. And the priest said, well, that first one doesn't count because it wasn't Catholic. And, yeah, but it's a valid marriage. You know? What does our Lord say about those who divorce their wives and, and marry others? Yeah. And so does the Catholic Church have jurisdiction to uh, annul that, that Lutheran marriage, or do they have to go back to the Lutheran Church? Well, it, uh, we're going to get into this very soon because we're going to get into the section on marriage. But uh, ecclesiastical laws apply only to Catholics. And where it comes into play is where it be, when John wants to marry a Catholic. Well, now you got to follow ecclesiastical law, you know. But no, just you know, Lutherans wandering around out there—they don't have to obey our laws. <laughs> they have to obey divine law. They don't have to obey, obey our ecclesiastical laws. But if they want to in, get involved with the Catholic Church in some fashion, then of course they have to obey ecclesiastical laws. We're going to go over this and over this and over this, uh, so you, you'll you'll know it by the end of the semester because it's it's extremely important. Uh, does anyone ha anyone have any questions about this? I, I I'm telling you again, these these priests got themselves into a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble. And, and the scenario, th this is the, exactly the scenario. You know, I I, I changed the um, you know the names a little bit, but this is exactly what happened twice, uh, two cases within a month or so of each other, and the vicar general was going 
from Zerk over this. And he said, who the hell is teaching canon law up there? <laughs> it wasn't me, I was down there. <laughs> but but it, was, it wasn't his fault either. And, and one of the priests indeed was, was not even from the archdiocese. You know, so, uh, but um, but that's, that's, it's important to understand the scenario because it's happened more than once. And you, you imagine th this happening, you know, the night before, the day before the wedding, suddenly it's discovered, well, wait a minute, you were married before. And you're not a Catholic, you're married to a non-Catholic. Well, and you, now you want to marry a Catholic. You're validly married. How, how can we do that? You know? We're talking about divine law. You know? And people get really angry. And we have a whole wedding set up. People, you know, you know what it's like to get married, most of you. you know? it's, uh, people have been dreaming about this their whole lives and so forth. And here's the big day, and they book the hall and, you know, and, and all the rest. And now, you know, the night before, the day before, whatever it is, the priest calls it off. You know? So there were threats of lawsuits. I don't know if, the, if those ever happened, but uh, um, people, people get very angry and upset. And look, look what we're doing to people's lives. You know? so, um, so get this, understand this. Okay? Uh, if somebody is an, uh, a non-Catholic, they are not bound by ecclesiastical laws. Right? So it doesn't matter if they're married in the Catholic Church or whatever, they're not bound by our laws. They're bound by divine law. Okay, um, number four, it is a universal law <clears throat> that all Catholics must abstain from meat on the Fridays of Lent, right? Universal law. One year, St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, falls on a Friday in Lent. Since it is the patronal feast of the Archdiocese of New York, the Archbishop of New York announces a dispensation from the law of abstinence on that day. So, you have a dispensation granted by the Archbishop of New York for... Um, uh, standing for meat on that particular Friday. Quest, uh, part A. Mary is a Catholic tourist who lives in Omaha and is visiting Manhattan on March 17th. Is she exempt from the Friday abstinence on that day? Yes. Yes. Um, B. Peter is a Catholic with a permanent residence in Manhattan. However, he is in Los Angeles on a business trip on March 17th. Is he exempt from the Friday abstinence on that day? Yes. yes. Yeah, the proper answer is yes, but I gave everybody credit whichever way you answered it because uh, it's such an odd scenario to think about, you know, um, because, uh, you know, uh, and, and chances are, uh, I didn't say this in the question, so the, the proper answer is yes, but in fact, one would think that the Archbishop would probably say everybody within the Archdiocese on that day is, is exempt, you know. I mean, uh, you know, I was in... Rome a couple of years in a row on March 17th, where St. Patrick's Day is not celebrated at all, you know, and I don't know if one of those days was a Friday, but um, the, the, the uh, dispensation from absence, abstinence um, technically, you know, might have affected me, but where's, where would I get a, you know, a hamburger <laughs> on, a, on a Friday? In Lent. <laughs> in, in Rome. Yeah, pizza. So, so right. Friday in Lent in Rome. Okay, so the... Um, the, the relevant canons are 87 and 91. So uh, canon 87, um, it's, the base, it's the basic power that the, um, uh, the bishop has to dispense, right? It says he can dispense the faithful um, from both universal laws and those particular laws made by the Supreme Authority uh, for his own territory as subjects. Right? So he can dispense universal laws. Um, when, whenever he, de he decides 
he judges it contributes to the, the spiritual welfare of his uh, of the faithful. Right. Uh, that's 87. The general um, the general power he has, and then 91 says and it's important to notice because it applies to more than just this. It applies again to marriage um, situations we'll be getting into. Um, in respect of their subjects, even if these are outside the territory, okay, so that would be the case of, of Peter, right? Um, those who have the power of dispensing can exercise it even if they themselves are outside their territory. So Peter could be in Los Angeles, uh, Cardinal Dawn could be in Dublin, um, and, 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 and still dispense Peter if he wants, right? Um, Unless the contrary is expressly provided, they can also exercise. They can exercise it also in respect to peregrini travelers, actually present in the territory. They can exercise it too in respect of themselves. Okay. So uh, Canon 91 would be the answer. So it said basically you can dispense both of them. Um, but I, you know, because the second part is so weird, I, I just gave everybody credit. Anyway. Okay. Uh, I was very pleased. As we used to say uh, when I was in the tribunal, the court is pleased. I was very pleased that most of you got number five, you know. Um, uh, and and some, some people have hang-ups about the whole quest, uh, question of compute, uh, computing um, uh, consequity and infinity, but, but uh, I think a majority of you guys got it. So um, this, this one says uh, a 50-year-old widower marries a 25-year-old woman Sadly, he gets very sick at the wedding reception and is taken immediately to the hospital where he slips into a coma and dies three weeks later. His widow and his 27-year-old son console each other and they then find themselves romantically attracted to each other. They visit Deacon David to see if it would ever be possible for them to marry. What is the canonical term that classifies their relationship? What is the degree in, degree in line of that relationship? Right? One or two of you said, well, you know, from a merely common sense human point of view, you know, I have one answer, but the, the canonical answer is this, you know, and most of you, I was delighted, got it correct. So, what is the canonical term that classifies their relationship? Affinity. Affinity, the degree in line? First, first, first degree. degree in what line? It's direct line direct by line. affinity. Okay, good. Uh, so, most of you got it. So, uh, and if you look at, um, Canon, was it? Canon, I think, 109. And again, just to refresh your memory, affinity arises from a valid marriage. You need that, first of all. Even if not consummated, and it exists between the man and the blood relations of the woman, and likewise between the woman and the blood relations of the man. Okay? It is reckoned in such a way, and it, it, it could be easier than this, it is reckoned in such a way that the blood relations of the man are related by affinity to the, same, to the woman in the, same, in the same line, in the same degree, and vice versa. In other words, you take out the, 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 the spouse uh, who has the relationship by um, consanguinity, you plug in the other spouse who has a relationship by affinity, but it's in the same degree, same line. So um, again, this is the easiest possible uh, way of looking at it. Okay, here we go, challenge. Let me see if you guys can see this. Okay, what did I say the guy's name was, John? Uh. Alphonse? <laughs> Anthony. <laughs> uh, I didn't give him a name. Okay. Let's name him Albert. Let's 
Okay, that would be great. So, Alvin. Can you guys see that? Yes. Really? Miracle. St. Albert, thank you. Okay. Albert has a son named Thomas. Thomas Aquinas. He it was his spiritual son. Yes. Not okay. so spiritual. Pardon? Not so spiritual. He's, Not one, spiritual. he's one of the doctors in the church. <laughs> okay. So Albert has a son named Thomas. And um, Albert's wife dies, right? No, wait a minute. What did I say? No, Albert. Albert has a son named Thomas. From, from a, Albert dies. Yeah, he, but he already has the son, right? right. From a yeah. previous marriage, right? right? Uh, so Albert was married to someone else before she died. Everybody's dying. So some, so she COVID. died. COVID. By COVID, yeah. So now here's here's Albert, the lonely widower, right? Albert is. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he's a lonely widower, and now he marries, I didn't give her a name. Teresa. Teresa. Of the zoo. So now Teresa comes on the scene. Teresa. She comes in. Okay? So first of all, what is the relationship of Albert to Thomas? Direct. Direct. Direct line, first degree, first degree and consanguinity, right? Blood relations, Blood. all right? So to figure out the relationship of Teresa to Thomas, all you do is take out Albert, plug in Teresa, and substitute the word affinity, and you have it, all right? So the relationship, again, of Teresa to um, Thomas is? First, first degree. First degree, direct, direct line, line the affinity. Of, of affinity, okay? That's, that's the simplest possible... Uh, way of looking at this. Okay. Are we okay with that door open? Yeah, you want me to close it? I don't know. You're the doctor. I'm, Is there I'm a doctor thinking, in the house? I'm, I'm just thinking... I, I Steve, you cold? I'm thinking I want ventilation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Keep it open. Yeah. Sorry. I walked into that, that meeting room around the corner this morning where first theology uh, had been... It was now the third period. And it was kind of warm in there, kind of stuffy in there. I was thinking, oh. No. <laughs> Open a window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Now, and most of you got the next one right as well. Uh, number six. Elizabeth, a Byzantine Ukrainian Catholic, is married to Jim, a Roman Catholic. They have a happy marriage. Except, when their first son is born, they disagree about the right in which to raise him. In frustration, Elizabeth takes the child to a Byzantine priest who baptizes him. To what to what right does their son belong? Father's. Father's right, okay? When you have two, uh, Catholics of two different rights and they can't agree uh, on the um, uh, on the right of their offspring, then the child belongs uh, um, to to the, um, to the to the Roman right. Now, to the right of the father. What am I saying? Right of the father. Canon 111. Does the Byzantine uh, Church agrees with this, or is there something that we just care? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm teaching you. I'm teaching you 1983 code, code. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's these things are all worked out. Yeah. And recently, they they've uh, come up with a set of corrections to uh, some of the canons 
um, in the code that take into account some of the discrepancies with the, uh, with the Eastern code. Yeah. So, um, can, uh, 111 number one, um, through, the, um, through the reception of baptism, a child becomes a member of the Latin church if the parents belong to that church, or should one of them not belong to it, they have both by common consent chosen the Latin church. If that common consent is lacking, the child becomes a member of the sui juris church to which the father belongs. Okay. So if there's disagreement, it's the um, church of the father. The sui juris Catholic church. We're not talking about Orthodox, we're talking about Catholic marriages. But most of you got this right. Um, can a lay person, number seven, can a lay person exercise the power of governance in the church? Explain and give one example. Can a lay person exercise the power of governance in the church? No. No. Through cooperation. Now, somebody gave you an answer. You were you're looking at the uh, commentary. Um, yeah, uh, this this is the object of, of a lot of um, study and controversy and all, and all of the rest. Who was the one who was getting to? The, yeah, that was that was a great answer. Yeah. So, um, and I remember when I was studying this at, uh, at Catholic University, they went on and on and on about the power of governance and so on and so forth. Um, for purposes of this course, we can't get into those controversies, really. We just have to look at the way things are now. Um, and as it says now, Canon 129, those who are in sacred orders are in accordance with the provisions of law capable of the power of governance, which in fact belongs to the church by divine institution. This power is also called the power of, of jurisdiction. So those who are uh, in sacred orders are capable, kapox, you know, Capaches, I guess, plural. Um, anyway, um, hab oh, no, it uses the word habiles, habiles. They, they are, they are suited. They are, um, um, they can validly do this. Okay, so those who are in sacred orders, that's what canon law says. Right? Uh, and then it says, lay members of Christ's faithful can cooperate in the exercise of the same power in accordance with the law. But I have to tell you. <laughs> Cooperation, yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember once, this is how crazy it got. I, I remember once going to the, um, when, I, when I was on the tribunal, I forget whether I was a judicial vicar at the time or just, uh, you know, um, I was associate judicial vicar before that. Anyway, I went uh, to see the chancellor to get approval to get new carpeting <laughs> for, the, for the offices because the, Carpeting hadn't been replaced since the building got up or something like that. It was it was awful. We needed new carpeting. And the the um, uh, the chancellor at the time was a priest. And I said, so you know, it cost such and such. And he said, and he looked at me and said, oh, I don't know, you know, uh, I, I I really can't tell you one way or the other. You know, we're gonna have to ask Bill Whiston and see if it's okay with him. Bill Whiston, you know, was the uh, the chief financial officer of the archdiocese. You know, yes, he cooperates in the exercise of, of uh, the power of governance. But let me tell you, if you're a priest or a deacon in the Archdiocese of New York, you better cooperate with him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that's the way things work. You cooperate with him. That's kind of the way things work. So yeah, the, um, in practice, what is this? How does this law well work out? You know? um, on the tribunal itself, I told you about my uh, my friend, my colleague uh, Silvanus Busandavaras, who's a, a very very uh, brilliant canon lawyer uh, and a prodigious worker. And um, so I would assign her to a three-judge panel, and she was on many of them. And with many of them, she did all the work. I mean, you know, she, she uh, 
All the stuff that you have to do as a judge. She was doing it. She was what's called the ponens. And the presiding judge can delegate a person called the ponens to do that. So she would do all the work. She would study the case really closely, and she would have very well-reasoned um, uh, reasons for, uh, for coming to her own conclusions about things, you know. So who's really running the show there, you know? <laughs> so, you know, because she was, she was brilliant. I knew, I knew I could rely on her. So, yeah. So, um, but technically, a layperson can only cooperate in the exercise of the power of government. So far, Sorry? Is, is, is the company still there, the original company? Was it ever changed? Uh, <laughs> well, something happened. Oh, you know what happened? Uh, now, we got the carpeting in place, but also what happened was around the time I left, uh, thank God I had left because I would have not put up with this. You know? <laughs> they, they wanted um, more space for, uh, for uh, chancery offices. Chancery is on the, on the 19th floor, the tribunal's on the 13th floor. So they moved floors around. They, no, they didn't move floors around, but, they, but they, were, they were overflowing. They wanted more space. They wanted more offices. They're looking around. That mm-hmm. tribunal's pretty big. Let's take some of their space, you know? So, um, so my, my successor made a deal, <laughs> you know, that uh, he did a lot of physical changes. He put up uh, uh, the individual workstations for people and so on. Before that, it had been wide open. Had individual workstations and so forth. The whole place got a lot smaller, and more crowded. It had to because they wanted to take that space from us. But he made some deals with them. You know, okay, you're gonna take that space from us. But you know, I, I forget whether we put a, put down the carpet at that point or not. But this this computer program we desperately needed that every other tribunal in the country had except us. You know, uh, so you can move your cases along fast and don't need as many people. You know, they were not approving that. Well, finally they approved it. So, uh, and, and he got to the point, God bless him, he got to the point where uh, he was moving his cases along like with rapid speed, you know, um, because commuters can do that. Anyway, so what is the difference between a vicar general and an episcopal vicar? Territory. Territory. Yeah, basically. Vicar has entire fiscal yeah. portion. So, and, and most of you were very good with this. Uh, the, um, almost all of you. Um, the vicar general assists the bishop, uh, this is Canon 475, he assists the bishop in the governance of the whole diocese. That's the difference, right? And an Episcopal vicar, Canon 476, um, has the same ordinary power um, as the vicar general, but it's limited to a determined part of the diocese or to a specific type of activity or to the faith of a, of a particular right or to certain groups of people. So it's more limited, but it's the same powers as the uh, vicar general. Um, number nine, since there is a growing shortage of priests in the United States, would it be possible for a bishop to assign a deacon to a parish as its pastor? Why or why not? Have to be in sacred orders, full care of souls. Right. You can't be a pastor. Some of you pointed out a deacon can be assigned as like an overhead who is technically the pastor, even though the deacon might be doing all the work. But you can't be a pastor unless you, um, in fact, are a priest. And um, and that's Canon 521. Also, you can refer to Canon, Canon 150 in a general sense, but specifically Canon 521 number one. And then um, true or false, I think almost I think all of you got this. Uh, the pastor is required to follow the decision of the parish council. More important matters, explain briefly. False, right? Yeah. Uh, Canon 536. The, the parish uh, has only a consultative role. 
uh, the parish council has only consultative role. And um, that's something, I don't know about your experience in your parishes, but I found when I came to, I think I might have mentioned this too, when I came to the parish where I was pastor, um, the people on the so-called parish council, which wasn't really a parish council, it was sort of like a mob. They would sort of have just announced meetings of the parish council, but anybody could come who wanted to, you know? So if there was some issue that people wanted to, you know, get all hot and bothered about and so forth, then, then they'd stuff, you know, they, they'd pack the, the, the meeting with their, their friends and so forth. But, um, like a school board meeting. Yeah, like a school board meeting. <laughs> yeah. so, so the... Um, CRT. Um, yeah, but they were under the impression, when I got to the, to the parish, boy, I got some people were really angry at me. Because they, they said, well, you know, I'm in the parish council, and you have to do what we tell you. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, and first of all, how did you get to the parish council? Were you appointed? <laughs> oh, you weren't appointed. Sorry. <laughs> and the first meeting I wanted, but this is enough on this. But the first meeting I had at the parish council, I, I, I sweat, spent a lot of time choosing people very carefully, as you can imagine. I had the first meeting, and a whole bunch of other people showed up because they heard there was a meeting, and they came just because they decided they'd be part of the parish council. So, <laughs> so oh, it's fun out there. Let me tell you. Okay. Good. So most of you did well. Uh, one or two of you have problems, we can talk about them. Don't anybody lose heart. Uh, this is the end of the world. You know, we, there are situations that come up that we can deal with, so don't worry about it. Okay. Um, yeah, but, um, but uh, overall, as I would say, the court is pleased. Cool. Um, so we're going to go on, and um, I wanted to get this stuff kind of out of the way, because we really need to focus now. We've been uh, getting into the canons of baptism, and then we're going to get into the canons on marriage uh, in just a few moments. So, um, and this is really, as I've already shown you, this is where push comes to shove. This is what you've really got to know. You know? Um, okay. <clears throat> and even for the final exam, as I said, I'm, I'm leaning uh, towards having a, uh, a humongous marriage case, you know, um, because many, many marriage cases are humongous, you know, and whatever I would uh, write down would not be something unusual. You know, because uh, these things get extremely complicated. So you, you can find yourself sometimes dealing with almost all the laws on, on marriages in, in like uh, in, in one situation. So um, so we'll see. Um, but let's uh, let's continue. So um, we were talking about um, recording the baptism, right? Um, I forget exactly what canon, the last two canons here, canon 875 through 878. Um, so just to refresh your memory, canon 875, um, if you don't have a sponsor, get at least a witness. You need somebody who can testify to the fact that the witness, that the uh, baptism took place, at the very least. You want a real sponsor, but it's, at the very least have a witness, okay, because um, Sometimes, very often, you have to prove that you were baptized. You know, um, and sometimes that can be a problem if uh, you didn't record, if uh, it wasn't recorded. I don't think I introduced this person to you before. Uh, there are two people I want you to meet. Um, we've already we've already met this priest uh, in many in many uh, cases that we dealt with, including the one about uh, Deacon Harry. Um, you know, with with the marriage and so forth. Um, yeah. This priest then, um, who neglects to uh, record the baptism, say, 
um, or does outrageous things like Deacon Harry um, in, in today's, uh, in, 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 that, uh, in that question that we had. Um, one of my predecessors uh, referred to that priest uh, very often. And so he gave birth to this priest, and I have, this is part of the, um, the, the patrimony <laughs> of St. Joseph's Seminary. Oh boy, I can't. very important you know this person, otherwise people won't believe you took canon law here. <laughs> <laughs> and his name is Stupid. Father Stupid. <laughs> oh, I know him. <laughs> Gentlemen, Father Stupid, Father Stupid Gentlemen and Ladies. Okay. Father Stupid um, has been around uh, St. Joseph Seminary for decades. Okay. But Senior Danny Flynn, who taught canon law, actually just before I came here as a student, introduced um, St. Joseph Seminary in the world to Father Stupid. Um, Father Stupid is all over the place, right? So Father Stupid is the one who doesn't record baptisms. Father Stupid is the one who um, decides that uh, your, your, your valid Lutheran marriage doesn't count, so you can just have a Catholic marriage, et cetera, et cetera. Father Stupid. And then yours truly gave birth, actually, to his, um, so we say his brother, and you know who he is. It's Deacon Stupid. Deacon of course. <laughs> Deacon Stupid. <laughs> so that is the, the that, that is the legacy that I will leave. The Stupid Brothers. The Stupid Brothers. Right, you got it. That's the legacy <laughs> that I will leave at St. Joseph's Seminary. Okay? So Father Stupid and Deacon Stupid. Um, I should have introduced you to them earlier, but, but here they are, okay? All right, um, so Father Stupid is the one who doesn't uh, record the baptism, or at least get, um, or, and doesn't even get a, get a witness. Okay, um, now sometimes, Canon 876, we mentioned this last time, it's important. Um, it happens very often, uh, you're gonna need a baptismal certificate uh, for people who are gonna get uh, married. You're gonna need baptismal certificates, you know? Um, for, for kids making their first Holy Communion, for kids getting confirmed, uh, for all sorts of situations, you're gonna need a baptismal certificate. What happens, and I think I mentioned this last time, what happens if uh, somebody comes from the Philippines and some Muslim terrorists burn down the church and the records are gone? You know, what do you do? You know, uh, uh, or you know, you write to different parts of the world where there are different Father Stupids in different parts of the world, you know, so, so Father Stupid doesn't get back to you, whatever it might be, what do you do? You know, sometimes you have to prove the baptism by other means. So how do you do that? Canon 876, to prove the conferral of baptism, if prejudicial to no one, the declaration of one witness beyond all exception is sufficient, or the oath of the one baptized if the person received baptism as an adult. So what do you do if, um, uh, so a simpler case, say, um, you know, little, um, what's, what's her name? I'm, I'm thinking of, of the Grinch who sold Christmas, Cindy Lou Who. No more than two. No more than Say little Cindy Lou Who wants uh, to make a first Holy communion. And her mom can't find the baptismal certificate or, you know, they came from a place where, you know, the, the church is gone or whatever it is. Sorry? Whoville. Yeah, Whoville, yeah. <laughs> the, you know, the, the church is gone. The rep, for whatever reason, they can't find this in the records where there are no records. What do you do? 
Um, if, the, if the mother of little Cindy Lou Who was there at the baptism, which took place, uh, say, uh, six or seven years ago, she can simply testify, you know, yeah, I was there. <laughs> I remember. It was in this church, this address. This is the name of the priest. This is the date. And yes, he poured water and he did all the rest. He baptized her. You know? So she's just a witness. Just a witness, right? You know, um, that's that's all. Right? So all you need is one witness. If you have a couple of witnesses, that's even better. Okay, that's the simplest case. What do you do if people are? It's you know, it's 30 years later. There are no siblings. Uh, the parents are deceased, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then it's more complicated. Then you have to start searching for. Um, uh, for witnesses, you know, maybe neighbors or something like that. You know? um, and sometimes it's it can't be done, you know. So, yeah. My my wife is a third order third, third order lay Dominican, and her friend hers Dominic ran into that problem because he was baptized in the Bronx, and the parish he was at there was a fire. There you go. And it burned all the records, and go. all his adult relatives were deceased except his mom who had dementia. Yep. So the lay order Dominicans will not let him in without his proof of his baptism. So what did they do? He he never joined. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can't yeah. the Chancery Office find it if there's a way to? Well, see that's a problem, and this is why they're they're trying to digitalize a lot of these things now. But but they haven't yeah. gotten very far with that. You know, some places they have, but but uh, archdiocese they have, as far as I know. I don't know about any of our other dioceses, but. Uh, um, so what do they do with the so many churches unfortunately have to close so what do they do with those oh that's churches? easy enough oh god you, you should see my parish where I was because there were a couple of other churches that had been in its orbit at one point so so all those records just moved to the whatever church takes over you know that, that's easy enough yeah. now we're talking about where things disappear that's a real problem it's a real problem um, I had a case where there was a um, a young woman who uh, wanted to come into the Catholic Church, she had come from Bermuda, I think. She grew up in Bermuda. And she couldn't remember if she was baptized. And her mother couldn't remember if she was baptized. She had gone to an Anglican school, but she couldn't remember if she had been baptized or not. Um, so what to do? You know, there no siblings, nobody from the school, you know, we tried to contact from the school. Nobody from the school had any records or anything. Uh, just didn't know. So I ended up conditionally baptizing her. She wanted that anyway because uh, she was coming into the church of the Easter Vigil. And when you had a baptism, oh, that's a whole big deal, you know. Mm. So, um, so she, she liked that. You know? But uh, sometimes you have to do a conditional baptism and people just don't know. So when cases like that come up, if it's simple enough, you get a, a, you know, a sworn statement from somebody who was there, a non-prejudicial non statement. You know, um, in other words, they, they have no reason to lie about this. You know, um, that that is that would be sufficient. But if you have any problems with this, call the chancery office. You know, um, yeah. and if it's a marriage case, uh, an annulment situation, then call the um, tribunal. You know? And then I, when I was in the tribunal, I remember, boy, we had people there who they were experts at getting these certificates from all over the world, you know, um, because, you know, just all these problems. Anyway, so you need you need proof of baptism. Uh, recording the baptism, Canon 877, notice the pastor is the one who's ultimately responsible, but he's going to delegate you, you know. 
and he may somebody he may have somebody else in the parish who normally records these, but you've got to make sure it's done properly. You know, so if you're doing a baptism, even if the pastor normally has uh, a, a you know a lay person with with nice handwriting record these things, you make sure it's done right because it's your responsibility. It's ultimately the pastor's responsibility, but he's de de delegated that responsibility to you. So make sure you get it done right. Okay, and now. Can a pastor, can your pastor make you do the paperwork even though, even if he does, performs the baptism himself? <laughs> uh, yeah, whoever, it's however you work it out. Yeah, I mean, you mean for a, for a, a baptism? Right, say, say the pastor does the actual baptism. Oh yeah, that happens all the time. Yeah, but but you, you take care of the paperwork, that way it's, it's, on, it's on you? Yeah, 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 no, that happens all the time, sure, you know, and a lot of parishes, you might have group baptisms, say, you know, and so it'd be, you know, maybe one priest was assigned that month or that week to give the instruction, get all the uh, information and so forth, and that's collected and given to the priest who's going to do the baptism. That happens all the time, I'm sure. Um, so, but the pastor, the pastor of the place where the baptism is celebrated must carefully and without any delay. Okay. Um, again, I, re I remember uh, Father Joe Penna in this very room saying. Don't wait <laughs> when there's a baptism or a wedding. And he said to us then, when we had a lot more guys being ordained, he said to us then, he said, do it yourself. Don't have the parish secretary do, uh, do it. You do it yourself. As soon as the, uh, whatever it is, the baptism wedding is over, you yourself go get the records, get the papers, sit down, and you record it. And he said, do it immediately. You know? So I'm passing that on to you. That's not always possible. But it's urgent that you get it done right away. It says... Uh, most carefully, without any delay, record in the baptismal register, and you'll see in the register what has to be recorded. The names of the baptized, mention made of the minister, parents, sponsors, witnesses, if any, the place and date of the referral of baptism, date and place of birth. You'll see all that uh, in the, in the um, register itself. And have, if you haven't done this already, have the pastor or one of the priests in, in the parish where you're helping out show you these, these, uh, these books, uh, the baptismal register in particular, and the, uh, the marriage register, you know? might want to look at uh, uh, communion register, confirmation register, death register, and all that, but especially baptism and uh, uh, and, and ma the marriage register. So you're, you're, there won't be total surprises when you get ordained. Okay? Um, number two, if it concerns a child born to an unmarried mother, okay, this is um, can be a problem. If it concerns a child born to an unmarried mother, the name of the mother must be inserted if her maternity is, is established publicly or if she seeks it willingly in writing or before two witnesses. Okay. So, so she says, yeah, I'm the mother, um, uh, that's, that's fine. You know, if it's, it's pretty well um, determined. Moreover, the name of the father must be inscribed if a public document or his, or his own declaration before the pastor and two witnesses proves his paternity. In other cases, the name of the baptized is inscribed with no mention of the name of the father or the parents, depending on the situation. So um, what a lot of parishes do now is you, you simply um, ask to see the birth certificate, the actual birth certificate, because that would have the name of the father and the mother. If there's anything on that's at variance with the birth certificate, then they've got to prove that this is true. Okay? So if the birth certificate does not have the name of the father, don't put the name of the father. You know? uh, unless um, it's proven somehow, and they have to, they have to prove it. Because they could then turn around and use their baptismal certificate to bring a, a paternity suit against against a, a guy who may not be the father. 
You know, if you list him as the father and you don't have proof that he is the father. Okay? So um, I'll introduce you to uh, someone else who's even older than Father Stupid and Deacon, and Deacon Stupid. Can you see over? You can't see over here. Can you see down here? Still? Yes. Okay. This is Latin. Pater Ignotus. Ignoramus. Ignoramus. <laughs> For what he did to the poor woman, he certainly is. But um, father unknown. All right? You'll see that sometimes in baptismal uh, records. Pater Ignotus. Father unknown. Okay? So if you don't know who the father is, don't put somebody's name down just because somebody tells you to. Have proof. All right? So it's a good idea in, in these troubled times to look at the... Uh, the actual birth certificate, unless the people that you personally know. You know. Um, all right, so that happens with some frequency. Potter ignotus, you know. And also, again, if you're not even sure uh, that the mother is really the mother, then you might even put uh, mater ignota. <laughs> you know, uh, this couple just brought this baby in to be baptized. They could have kidnapped kidnapped the baby for all you know. You know, so uh, just have to be very careful. You have to have proof of these things. Good question. Yeah, I can't remember the, the term of it, Father, but we were speaking in Catholic social teaching about how there's like this movement now to have, we have biological parents, in vitro surrogates. Oh, God. And there's all this like, <laughs> where like somebody can have, I don't know, six or seven people who have a, a parenting relationship with a child. So we're just going to, if, if a birth certificate changes, I don't know if they've changed birth certificates in any particular department. It's a Department of Health document, right? Yeah. yeah. But when yeah, those, assuming they're going to change those documents, what, what do we go by? Nah. We have to like figure that out. Who to find out what parents are? Yeah, that's when you call the chancery because this call is something. This is something. This is something pretty new, but it does happen once in a while. Um, what would what would happen? You have to talk yeah. to Dr. Kamosi. It's it's this is all sort of a you know stuff that he's talking about in his in his book on reproductive rights and you know, um, kind of like the, the way things are getting coming to we'll be yeah, ready for yeah, that yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? that's a good question sometimes people come in and change their names and all are coming with no, they have all the names they have the names, they have the names of the embryos they have a whole manifesto yeah, they got ready, literally. What is that? I mean, so for frozen embryos, they they literally have legal documents and almost like a manifesto of like, you know, the history of, you know, um, who donated, who was who was the surrogate, if there was a surrogate, who was you know, or who was the real mother. Was, I mean, it's it's wow. fairly deep, and I, I don't that can't be changed. That's, that's if you get a, if you can't get a case like that, call the chancery. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to follow down that here, and I don't know the answers to a lot of these things. I don't think uh, they've been worked out yet in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. uh, for a child who's adopted, number three, um, the names of those adopting are to be inscribed, and at least if it is done in the civil records of the region, also the names of the natural parents, according to the norms of Canon 1 and 2, uh, number, numbers 1 and 2, uh, with due regard to the prescripts of the Conference of Bishops. Again, uh, don't put anything down that you don't have proof for, okay? So if you have, if the child is adopted, um, and, uh, and the adopting parents come in, you can put them down as the, as, as the parents. And if it's um, 
and you have to be careful about this. Um, if the ch if uh, if if it says on the legal document, you know, the child is adopted, you can you should put that in the in the notes. But maybe not because you know, suppose the child doesn't know that they're adopted and, you're, and they're worried. Right. Um, you know, 20 years from now, the child reading that, so it might be that you don't put that down. You know, so you have to look at it. Uh, do that on a case-by-case -case basis. You also have to get proof of the adoption because when you get consent for a surgery for a kid that's adopted, yeah. you have to make sure that people that are bringing the kid in yeah. are legally the adopted parents that have custody of the child because yeah. sometimes it's somebody else. And just in the case of, or if, if the child's living with a grandmother and the parents are MIA and the grandmother brings the kid in, oh. and you're gonna and you're gonna do surgery on the kid. This happened actually to me, where I didn't ask if the grandmother was actually the legal guardian, oh, and yeah. had the grandmother signed the consent, and then I got hauled in and said, you know, she's not the legal guardian. The Whoa. mother is who was a crackhead, and you know, am I, oh, you know, God. in and out. I yeah. mean, it was, and it became a big deal. Oh boy, yeah. But same with this, I would imagine. Sure, you gotta be careful, you know. Because anything you write down can then be used by somebody, you know. Uh, somebody could subpoena. These days, you yeah. know, all these records used to be confidential. Now they subpoena everything they want, you know. All your records can be subpoenaed. All the records that we have here for you guys, all the records we have for seminarians and, and priests, they, they love to subpoena these things, you know. So, so be very careful what you write down. Get proof for whatever it is that you, that you have, you know. So the birth certificate itself is something that uh, you need to look at. Um, can 878, <clears throat> if the baptism was not administered by the pastor or in his presence, the minister of baptism, whoever it is, must inform the pastor of the parish in which it was administered, um, in which it was administered of the control of the baptism, so he records the baptism according to the previous canon. Right? So, um, yeah, so it, it must be recorded. The, 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 the pastor is responsible for it. Uh, it um, as I said, in most, par most parishes, it probably wouldn't even be him who does it. It might be him once in a while, but uh, uh, just make sure it's recorded and recorded properly, recorded correctly. You know, so you, if somebody else is doing it, a lay person in your parish, be looking over their shoulder. You know, make sure it's done properly because these are documents that affect people for the rest of their lives. We don't, we don't uh, keep copies of the legal documents that they bring in, right? We return everything. Yeah, you return everything. But make a note of what it said. Okay. All right. Um, any other questions on baptism? Okay. So we're coming to the big moment. Um, if it's all right with you guys, I'm going to skip confirmation because I, um, you guys are not ministers of confirmation. Uh, this is more for RCIA and that kind of thing. Uh, I think it's more important that we spend more time on marriage. marriage. Okay. So the rest of this. Uh, semester we're going to spend on marriage beginning on Canon 1055. Okay, <clears throat> so we have a little over 100 canons to get through. Uh, some of them are very important, some of them are not so important. But get to know this part of the code really well because you're going to have to use it a lot. We hope, we hope people will still continue to get married in the church, you know. So, um, and we begin with these foundational canons. I'm going to spend a certain amount of time on this very first one. 
uh, because it's very, very important. And the, um, I, you may recall, you probably don't recall, I mentioned uh, at the very beginning of the course how um, the Code of Canon Law, that you should be familiar with it, you should be comfortable with it, um, you can even use it once in a while for preaching. Remember I mentioned at the wedding I did for my friend Silvano Sundavaris and, um, and went with all the, the distinguished uh, attendees and canon lawyers and people who worked in the chancery office and all the rest. So I said, I would be remiss if in this august company I did not, and I pulled out this book, but I didn't quote the quote of canon law, and I opened it, opened it to this canon, canon 1055, and my whole homily was based on this canon. Um, so you can do the same. You, you wouldn't want to have it in, in, you know, in scholarly language. But um, this, uh, this gives you a, a lot to, uh, to meditate on and to preach about and to talk about with the, uh, the couples who are, who are coming to you in preparation for marriage. So we'll read through um, the canon, uh, and then we're going to kind of pull it apart. Um, so <clears throat> canon 1055, number one. Right, in the green book, it's on page 1240. Canon 1055, number one. The matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life and which is ordered by its nature to the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of a sacrament between the baptized. And number two, which is all the way on 1247, there's a lot of commentary on this, as you can imagine. For this reason, a valid matrimonial contract cannot exist between the baptized without it being by that fact a sacrament. Okay? So, getting back to um, 1055 number one. Right off the bat, the matrimonial covenant. It uses the word covenant. The old code, the 1917 code, didn't use that term. It used the word contract. It's always talking about a contract, and, and it's its approach to marriage was, um, it was very, very legalistic, if you want to use that, uh, that, that term. It asked the question, well, what is marriage essentially? It is two parties making a contract. A man and a woman contract. They, they exchange, exchange an agreement to, uh, to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, so they looked at it as, as a contract. But the code, and this is following on the Second Vatican Council in particular, um, calls it, first of all, um, a covenant. And that very word covenant, what does that it's a sacred, mean to you? It's a sacred contract between <clears throat> God and people. Yeah, it's a sacred contract, all right? You know, uh, um, covenant made with Abraham, covenant made with Noah, right? Covenant uh, made uh, with... Supper. Yeah, and the, the new covenant, you know, every day at mass, you know, this is the new covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant, you know. So um, covenant means a sacred contract. It means God is involved, right? So right away you see what's going on here. The, um, the Second Vatican Council was very concerned about uh, putting the emphasis on the sacredness of marriage. And this is for everybody. We're not talking about sacramental marriages at all yet. We're just talking about marriage, pure and simple, right? It is, it is a covenant. And in the old code, uh, the, the, the marriage was defined as a contract, it's basically, frankly, uh, 
it was a contract for sex, right? Basically, it is a contract. Um, uh, it, it was a contract between a man and a woman in which they uh, give in exchange the right to. Um, and we'll, maybe I'll get to this later uh, if I bring in the 17th code for um, the right to the body for acts which in and of themselves are suited for procreation of offspring. That's the way it's worded in the uh, 1917 code. That's what marriage was defined as. Just that, you know. Um, uh, and of course, it was characterized by um, indissolubility, permanence, uh, fidelity. But um, but that's what it was for. It, it was it was a contract for uh, uh, giving each other the right to the body for these acts, which are suitable for uh, production of offspring. That was it. That was it, folks. You know. If there's love present and all sorts of other great things present, that was nice. But marriage itself was just that. You know? So when people got themselves into trouble about uh, you know, all sorts of things, their marriages were on the rocks and so forth, the marriages weren't working from the beginning, the thing was just a big mess from the beginning. Um, the, the thinking was, well, if you're if you're capable of having sexual relations and you committed to sexual relations and you committed to permanence um, and fidelity, then it's a valid marriage. Now, I don't care if you hated each other from the beginning and uh, and you were you know fighting like cats and dogs from the beginning, and you know one of you was a, a, a you know a, a coke addict and uh, the other was whatever you know uh, doesn't matter. You were you were able to do this and you exchanged the. Um, the right to do that, that's marriage, that's it, case closed. Um, gradually, the church has come to see that it's more nuanced than that. You need more than that to, to have a, a, an actual marriage. But that, uh, that's why we have so many annulments now. But that's basically what uh, the attitude of the church was officially. If you wanted to get right down to it, you know, can I, you know, Father, can I leave my wife? No, you're, because you exchanged the right to sexual relations and permanence and fidelity and all the rest, and that's it. So there's a, a, a larger, deeper understanding now. So instead of it being a contract for uh, sexual relations or, or, or openness to sexual relations, it's now a covenant, a covenant, a divine, um, a divine contract by which a man and a woman, um, <clears throat> the, the um, old code spoke about the parties, parties to a contract, right? The new code speaks about a man and a woman, right? So it's speaking about them in their, in their certainly identity as, as sexual beings, but also as persons, They're not just parties. You know, you could have the state of New York as a party to whatever, but a man and a woman, right? This person here and this other person here, okay? A man and a woman, right? not just parties. And what is it that they do with the covenant? They just don't make an agreement for sexual relations. They established between themselves, in Latin, it's consortium totius vitae, a, a, um, a partnership of the whole of life. A partnership of the whole of life. What a huge change from the 1917 code. A partnership of the whole of life. And which is ordered by its nature to the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. Okay? All of that you know, is, is what marriage now is. So it's a partnership of the whole of life, consortium totius vitae. 
Now, of course, I look at these things as a tribunal judge, and I ask, well, does that mean if, if, if there was any part of the whole of life that wasn't included in, in this consortium, this, this partnership, marriage is invalid? You know, and so you have, and they start asking all sorts of questions about what actually now makes a valid marriage. But you need more than just openness to use of the body for acts that are suited to offspring. There's more to it than that, right? So you have, a, it's a covenant, it's, it's a, a sacred contract. It's not just parties, it's a man and a woman and their personhood establishing between themselves a partnership of the whole of life. Okay. That's what marriage is. And this all comes from, um, uh, the Second Vatican Council, Gaudium and Spes, especially, uh, number 48. Um, and what is the end? Of, what are the ends of marriage? What is marriage for? Okay. Why do people do this? What, what is the purpose of marriage? So you have the three ends of marriage, uh, the two ends of marriage. And the two ends of marriage are the good of the spouses, the, uh, in Latin, the bonum conjugum, the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. Okay? Th those are the, the ends of, of marriage. In the, um, uh, it in the old code here. Uh, in the old code, um, the ends of marriage were, were listed in hierarchical order. And the first end of marriage in the 1970 code, the first number one purpose of marriage was? Procreation. Procreation and education of offspring. That was number one. That's why you get married to have kids. That's the purpose of marriage. That was number one in the 1917 code. And number two was, <laughs> um, I have to put it in Latin. I love this term. And then we take a break. Your spouse to have. So the first, the first purpose of marriage, the first reason why you get married, is to uh, to, uh, to have children, and um, there's a procreation and education of children. That was number one. That came first. The second one was. Um, can, you, can you see this? Can you guys read it? Yes. Yeah. Remedium. Concupiscentiae. What does that mean? Concupiscence. Yeah. Remedy of concupiscence. <laughs> All right. In other words, you're horny and you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it takes care of that problem. <laughs> Father Charles okay. never puts it that way. Pardon? Father Charles never puts it that yeah, way. Yeah, well, I might put that. <laughs> so, the remed remedium concupiscentiae. It, it is the, the cure for sexual urges. But notice, it's a remedy. You know, you, you have this desire for sexual activity. That's conceived as, as <laughs> doctor, we need a cure for this. <laughs> we need a remedium. I read saltpeter. Pardon? Saltpeter. Saltpeter. So it's it's a problem that has to be dealt with. Um, one's desire for uh, sexual relations. See see the change that's that's uh, that's come about now. I mean, there's um, obviously we know sexual uh, 
um, activity can go the wrong way and their illicit desires and all the rest. But fundamentally, you know, the gift of sexuality is just that, it's a gift, you know? And so it's not, it's not this bad thing that has to be uh, cured. It's not a disease that has to be cured, but it is uh, something that has to be uh, used appropriately, right? So, but, but the 1917 code said, purpose of marriage, number one, um, the, um, the, the production, um, the generation and um, education of offspring, and number two is the remedy for concupiscence, for medium concupiscentiae. So that's changed in the new um, in the new code to um, first of all there is no hierarchy they're both equal it doesn't say one is more important than the other and it, it puts the old second one first so it says first of all it's ordered by its nature to the good of the spouses not just the remedium concupiscentiae but the good of the spouses because you know why do you get married yes obviously you know you're you're sexually attracted to your wife but there's so much more to it than that there better be so. Um, it's the good of, of the spouses. You, want, you, you know you can have a happy life together, you know, or you, you hope you'll have a happy life together, right? So it's the good of the spouses. That's uh, that and the procreation and education of offspring. They're equal uh, ends of marriage, purposes of marriage, right? Okay. And all of that, we'll get into this after the break, all of, that, all of that has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of the sacrament between the baptized, but all of this holds for everyone, baptized or not. And all of that has been raised to the dignity of the sacrament um, between the baptized. Okay, so we'll continue this after the break. So, like 15 minutes, uh, 25 votes. History of uh, philosophy. And we're talking about this. Uh, he was, when I was there, he was chairman of the philosophy department at Columbia. And, um, maybe when Father Riley was there too, I don't know. But he, uh, <coughs> James Walsh, okay, you know, he has Bishop Walsh who lives here, right? James Walsh is Irish, you know, baptized with Catholic, etc. So he was teaching this course in the history of philosophy, and he is, um, and he came to the medieval section, you know, and he uh, he said, well, now that we're getting to this uh, uh, to this section, where we're going to discuss. Uh, a lot of Catholic philosophers and theologians. You know, I have um, I have to state a few things. He said. He said, even though my name is Walsh, and I look like a Jesuit. He said, and he, and he kind of did. You know, he said, um, and he was a baptized Catholic. He said, uh, he said, I'm I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a theist. I don't believe in God. He said, I'm not just an atheist, but I'm a militant atheist. Whoa. Ooh. And he said. Now, in the past, we've had a problem with this course because as we start to read some of these uh, medieval uh, philosophers like uh, Aquinas and Bonaventure and others, he said, uh, some students got really interested in this and, and took it too far and ended up becoming, uh, ended up, like, becoming priests and monks. You know? uh, in, in those days, Columbia was still all, all men. He looked around at all of us, including me, and he said, I don't want that happening to anyone in this class. <laughs> <laughs> so I read Thomas Aquinas and eventually became a priest. I found out it was too late, but I found out um, eventually that he actually lived in my first parish. If I know that, it would have been hilarious to go visit him. He wouldn't have remembered me. So, but uh, and he um, and his favorite philosopher was Thomas Aquinas. Wow. 
Because he said, as a philosopher, his method, he said, was just the best of any philosopher ever. He said he didn't agree with his uh, his presuppositions, but but his method he thought was just amazing. So yeah, Father O'Reilly and I shared shared uh, that experience at Columbia. So um, okay, moving on to marriage. Sorry? Let's go to the chapel. Let's go to the chapel. <laughs> All right. So, Canon 1055. <clears throat> it's really important to, um, and I wish I had more time to talk about it, but it's important to let this kind of sink in and to, and to, to hear what the church is saying, you know, um, about how she wants us to approach marriage. Because sometimes you'll find, as clerics, uh, your temptation will be let's you know let's take care of the paperwork and, and let's pay the organist and let's do this that, and the other thing, but uh, we're preparing them to enter this this matrimonial covenant, you know. And as was pointed out, the covenant ultimately, all these covenants that the Lord made in the Old Testament, uh, culminating in the new and eternal covenant, which is our Lord and the Holy Eucharist. So, um, and marriage marriage reflects that. You know, I mean, what, what is, why is marriage a sacrament? Because it, it, re, it reflects, uh, it embodies in a certain sense the, uh, the spousal relationship that, that our Lord Jesus Christ has with his church, right? <coughs> so um, that's why the canon says that the matrimonial covenant, which is true for everybody, whether they're Buddhist or atheist or Hindu or whatever they are, it's true for everybody, has been raised between the baptized, it's been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of the sacrament. It's still a covenant for everybody else, but it's raised to the dignity of the sacrament between the baptized by Christ the Lord. And that, um, and just as, not just as an aside, but something that, pe that, that people misunderstand, the, um, the validity and the, sacrament the sacramentality of a, of, of a marriage are, um, they're not two separate things. Well, they are two separate things. If a marriage, if a marriage between the, the baptized um, is valid, then it is a sacrament. Okay, um, it, that's all there is to it. Uh, so you can't have like two two people who decide, well, we want we're going to get married, and later on we're going to make it a sacrament. No, if you're two baptized people and validly married, it is a sacrament. So you can't you can't separate one from the other. I, I don't know why people do that, you know. But um, but it's the same thing. So the issue, of, you know, for the tribunal certainly would be: is this marriage valid or not? You know, not is it sacramental or not? If it if they're baptized, it is sacramental. You don't have to prove that in a further thing. Okay, is that clear? Because a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah. I mean, are you saying two baptized people get married in the justice of the peace? It's still two baptized people who are validly married. Okay. All right. Now we'll see what that means later. Uh, we just saw two Lutherans in front of the Justice of Peace. Yeah, that's valid. That's a sacrament. Two Catholics, no, because it's a violation of Canon 1108 that we're going to get to. Then how is it a sacrament if they're Lutheran and they're not Catholic? Because they're it's baptized. law. Read, read the Canon. It says it's been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of the sacrament between the baptized. If you're baptized, so, you're born again in Christ. You have. So my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, who both baptized in the Catholic Church, yeah. but they were not married in the Catholic Church, that's no. a valid marriage? No. 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 So you're, you're mixing up validity and sacramentality. 
No, that's not valid. We're going to get to all this later. We're going to, we're going to actually study Canon 1108 um, as, as, a, as a canon. But if it's if two people are are baptized and then they are validly 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 married, it is a sacrament ipso facto. Whether they're two Episcopalians or two Baptists, whatever it is, it is a sacrament. Okay. But it has to be valid before it can be a sacrament. Otherwise, it's just living there. But it's not valid as far as the church is concerned. Valid, valid, okay? Validity is validity. Okay, I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> if you'll cover it, yeah. I don't want to waste the class no. on this. No, this is important. Validity means validity. Validity for, for who? For validity. purposes of the church or purposes of the world? In the validity. eyes of God? Validity. If it is valid or not. I mean, we're starting canon law for the purpose of the Catholic Church. That's true, yeah. So what's the question? What makes something valid? It, <laughs> it, it, it really happens. You know? Really? really? It really happens. So today we had mass in the chapel, and the main celebrant took up bread and wine, and he said the words of our Lord from the Last Supper. If he had picked up uh, potato chips and coke, it would have been invalid. It would not have happened. Okay. Right. If two men try to marry each other, it is invalid. Okay. Okay, but just because a marriage is, is valid doesn't automatically make it a sacrament, does it? If they're, if, they're if they're baptized, it absolutely does. Which means, therefore, if two baptized people go to City Hall and get married legally, that's a sacrament. It's a valid marriage. We would consider that a sacramental marriage for purposes of dealing with. Well, it let me ask you: Is it valid marriage? But not for a Catholic. Not for a Catholic. Because a Catholic has additional stuff that has to go on top of that to make it valid. That's right. Yeah, we're we're going to get to Canada. Is, is, is that where ecclesiastical law kicks in? The only question is validity or not. It doesn't matter whether it's ecclesiastical law, it's divine law. Is it valid or not valid? That's the issue. Okay? Um, yeah, that, that's the issue. Right? So we'll see later in terms of non Catholics. Yeah, two Baptists walk into a, two baptized Baptists walk into a justice of the peace and not married before and they. They really want to be married in a true sense. Um, then, then they're validly married, and it's a sacrament. You know, if two Catholics walk into the Justice of Peace, we'll see this later. Um, because of Canon 1108 and ecclesiastical law, it's invalid, so it's not a sacrament. Okay. And we're gonna, we're going to get to that. But uh, if it's valid, it doesn't matter who considers it valid. You know, it, it's valid. Okay. Whether I, I like it or not, I, you know, I mean, people have their own opinion about things, you know. Um, uh, I've, I've had people, um, I've had lesbians come to me in confession and tell me about their valid marriages, their, their lesbian lovers, you know, and so forth, you know. That's their opinion, but it's false, okay? It's false. It's not valid. So whatever it is, if it's, if it's valid and it's two people who are baptized, it is a sacrament. Not two people, a man and a woman. Hmm? Not two people, a man and a woman. If it is valid. 
and you were going to see what's required for the living. What is required is a man and a woman. Yeah. If it's valid, that's all you need to know. You need to know what makes. Uh, and we're going to we're going to go through the canons and they'll show us what makes a sac what what makes a marriage valid. You know, but if the marriage is valid, and the two people who are married are baptized, then it is a sacrament. Is that you still don't get it? That's what because you're not saying that there has to be conditions for a Catholic no, to make it valid. That's not present for a Protestant. If, if that's a Catholic. But we're talking about people who are baptized. How do people get baptized besides Catholics? Christians. Pardon? Christians. Are Catholics Christians? Well, yeah. <laughs> you're talking about other types of Christians. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's a way of putting it. Yeah, all baptized Christians, if they're validly married, it's it's a fact of sacramental. You still don't understand that? Not 100. No. Yeah. What, so what's what's the difficulty? Well, let me ask you a question. My my brother and sister-in-law. My brother-in-law was previously married in the Catholic Church. He got divorced. He married my my sister-in-law. They got married outside of the Catholic Church. So because he got divorced and not annulment, that's because is that a that's an invalid marriage, correct? So it's not a sacrament? Correct. If it's invalid, it's not sacramental. But you keep saying sacramental. Only the Catholic Church has the seven sacraments, correct? So we, uh, when you... Well, I see what you're getting at. Yeah. Because um, we have, we rec I mean, the other the other Protestants, they have, they believe, they think it's Holy Eucharist, but it's, it's, it's grape juice. They, they, they think it's his blood. Right. Okay. So they only have two because they discount the other five sacraments that we have. That's that's yeah. my summing block is sacramentally. Okay, because they because they don't have value ordained priests, so they don't have right. value priests. They don't have confession. They, they don't, don't have, they, they don't have, have apostolic confession like we have. They don't have they don't have, um, they don't have holy orders. Right. Yeah, but they have baptism. Yes, they have baptism. All right. If you've seen it in the hospital, the Muslim nurse right. pours the water and says words, that's valid. Okay. And they don't they don't acknowledge it, but they but they have uh, matrimony. If, if two baptized people are validly married, it is a sacrament. Okay. Right? It doesn't matter what denomination they belong to. Right if they're validly married. So the question is always validity. All right? We just look at validity. Um, and what makes the marriage valid or not. And if, by the way, the two people are, are, are married, uh, are, are, are baptized, so that's great. Then, then it's also sacramental. But the, the thing is validity. So, we so validity. When, when you speak of validity as far as marriage goes, are you, are you talking about divine law, not human law? It depends what law it is. There are different laws that affect validity. Which we didn't get to yet, right? Yeah. Okay, okay so if, yeah, I, shut up, if I shut up, you'll get into if, if, if two atheists stand in front of the justice of the peace, and vow that they are going to give themselves to each other for a period of 10 years only, and then they're going to divorce. That's invalid. Okay. Okay, let me ask you a question then. My stepdaughter, she got her thing online, 45 minutes, she can marry people in the state of New York. Yeah. Her cousin Vinny is an atheist. She witnessed his marriage to his wife, who's an atheist, Michelle. Would that be considered a valid marriage? Well, we have to, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Are either of them baptized Catholic? Then he was. Then it's, then it's invalid. Because she isn't. Right. If you're a baptized Catholic, she's not. She's not. 
So we're going to get to Canon 1108. I just, I just mentioned it on the, on, the, on the midterm. We will get to Canon 1108. Canon 1108 says, for validity, a Catholic must be married in a Catholic ceremony. Catholic. Okay. That's the whole point of that, uh, of that question. That we have. But we'll see this. But if it's bat two baptized people, whatever the denomination, and whatever people think in their denomination, it doesn't matter. Two baptized people who are validly married, validly married, okay? It's a sacrament. Okay. Validly married. Not your divorced, divorced ex whatever who gets in front of just, no. Validly married. Okay. And we're gonna see what makes for valid marriage. Okay. All right, so, um, and that has certain implications in, in law, as a matter of fact, um, which we will get to, okay. So, um, and then, um, Well, just to re recapitulate what we just said, number two, on page 1247, for this reason, a valid matrimonial contract cannot exist between the baptized without it being by that fact a sacrament. Okay? So, okay, enough said for now. Um, now, there's a lot of discussion on this, um, apart from, you know, the confusion of validity and sacramentality. <coughs> because what happens if you have, um, I, I just ran into a couple um, after Mass on Saturday evening in the parish where I, where I help out. And um, they're a lovely couple. They came in at the end of Mass. And uh, he's, he's a, a fireman from, from, from the area, and he came in with his fairly new bride. I think they're married about a, a month or so. And the two of them, it was a uh, Saturday night, and the two of them had gotten a, a start on things. You know? So they were a little emotional about whatever. You know? uh, but we had an interesting discussion. You know? and, um, and of course, you know, I'm a priest, and here they come in, and she, uh, and she, she really liked the vestments I had. Uh, she said, oh boy, can you wear, wear those outside? So she talked about vestments. She talked about how beautiful the church was. She started crying, you know, again, you know, because uh, uh, super ego soluble in alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> but also I think she she felt I, th I think she felt she, I think she was touched by grace when she went there too. She, she missed God, you know, and she said, yeah, we we go to mass maybe once a year, you know, and that kind of thing. She said, I'm a Buddhist now, and you know, I don't, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think you can confine yourself to just one person, like one person, Jesus, you know. But there are there are other holy people, you know. <clears throat> So I was, you know, trying to talk to them as best I could through this haze that, you know, they had. You know, but um, so, but the two of them, you know, I was thinking they, they were both cat, they were both raised Catholic, you know, because um, uh, he had a, he had a, he had an Italian last name, and she, uh, um, and she, she said that she uh, had been baptized with Catholics, made her first communion, all the rest, you know, and you know, if they hadn't been so drunk, I would have loved to have said, uh, you know, oh, you, oh, you, you're married. Wouldn't you love to get married in this beautiful? They just love the church. Wouldn't you get love to have your marriage come validated in this beautiful church? You know, and we can have a beautiful ceremony and all this beautiful music. Oh, we're these beautiful vestments. You know, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but I wanted to get to that point because there they are. They're two. They're two baptized persons who are married, um, and it's invalid because of Canon 1108 that we'll get to. But also, one asks the question in that case: Suppose they had gotten married in the church. Suppose on the face of it, everything was valid. You know, but they have no faith. You know, um, does that mean that the marriage is not a sacrament? 
And this is a this is a question that's been discussed a lot. You know, uh, Saint John Paul the Great said, "No, if you're baptized, mm. that's it, because otherwise you're making a very very subjective judgment right. on people." How how when when do you reach the point where it's it's not a sacrament? You know, they had some kind of an inchoate faith. You know, she's she calls herself a Buddhist. You know, she comes in, she's she's baptized and she's made her first communion. She comes into church. She's attracted by the beautiful beauty of the church. She cries. You know, there's some kind of faith there already, even yeah. she doesn't recognize. You know, so where do you draw the line? You know, so the church says canonically that um, that if you were baptized, you were baptized. And in terms of of, of a marriage being sacrament or not, if it's valid, it's between the baptized. That's it. Okay, it doesn't matter if they. They don't have any faith, you know, which it seems kind of counterintuitive, you know. But that's the way it works. Because otherwise, you couldn't possibly figure these things out. Everything would be totally subjective. It's analogous to saying, suppose the priest uh, himself, when he's saying mass, uh, has lost his, his faith in the Eucharist. Suppose he doesn't believe a word of what he's doing. You know. Well, if he intends to do what the church does, it's still valid. It's still valid. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Otherwise. It, it would just be chaos, you know. So, um, so that's why it says, for this reason, a valid matrimonial contract, again, a valid matrimonial contract, valid matrimonial contract, not exist between the baptized, anyone baptized, not just Catholics, without it being by that fact a sacrament. Okay. All right. So getting back to uh, Canon 1055 number one. So you have the three ends of marriage, or the two ends of marriage. Sorry. What are the, the ends of marriage? What is the end? What is the purpose of, of getting married? And, and again, what are, what are the ends of marriage that we just discussed for the new code? Good for the spouses and procreation education. Okay, so the, the good of the spouses and procreation education of, of offspring. Okay, those, those are the ends of marriage. There are, in addition, the three goods of marriage. Have you heard of the three goods of marriage, the three bona of marriage? Augustine. Augustine. Yeah, where, did you take a course in this? Yeah, I remember it from, uh, we had a course in, uh, with uh, Father Organo that he spoke about the ends of marriage. And he did? about Augustine, yeah. Uh, what course was that? Pastoral Issues in Contemporary Moral Theology. Oh, okay, so there would be some of that in there, yeah, but it wasn't sacramental theory. So uh, are all of you familiar with the three goods of marriage? Anyone not familiar with the three goods of marriage? Okay, we'll go over them. Um, So the three goods of marriage, according to Saint Augustine, the three, the three goods that you want to have in marriage are. What's the first one? Permanence. Permanence. Second one? Fidelity. Fidelity. And the third one? Openness to offspring. Openness to children. Uh, uh, children. Pleasure. children. Pleasure, pleasure. The three goods of marriage. You need to know these, all right? This is very important. The three goods of marriage, okay? 
uh, permanence, fidelity, and openness to children. You don't have to have children, but you have to be open to the possibility of having children. Okay. That, those are the three goods of marriage. You have to have those goods, uh, or you, you have to want to have those goods. Um, uh, other, otherwise, you're not really married. Okay. So if you, uh, if you marry with an intention against permanence, okay, uh, and this happens all the time, Let's get hitched, let's see how things go, and what the heck, you know, and five years later, we're out of here. Start know? a marriage. Pardon? Start a marriages. Start a marriages, yeah, exactly, all right? So for, those are invalid marriages from the get-go because there's an intention against permanence, okay? Um, fidelity, you know, this happens less often, but it happens, you know, in our, in our crazy culture, you know, both are fooling around, well, we can continue that, but let's get married anyway. You know, so okay. uh, that's uh, invalid. Okay, you're committing yourself to an exclusive relationship. Right? And again, openness to the possibility of having children it doesn't mean you have to have children. But openness to the possibility. On, on the question of openness to the possibility to have children, right. does it have to be limited just to one child, two children, or no, just the possibility of having children. Because now, now we see so many. Uh, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. So many couples that get married and say, "I'm only having one child." Yeah. Well, um, that's certainly not the spirit of marriage. Well, it depends. It depends. Um, people have, uh, and this is really a question for moral theology. You know? uh, people certainly uh, have a right responsibility to, uh, you know, to to regulate births, you know, in in a in a legitimate way, you know, um, but. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, but if they just say we're, we're not going to have any more children, well, I don't know. That, that's, that's for moral theologians. If someone, uh, let's put it this way, from the point of view of this course, canonical issues in marriage, in, in, um, in marriage uh, if a couple or one of the parties um, says from the get-go, no kids, right? And to make sure that happens, they're having sexual relations, but they're always using some kind of birth control to make sure this doesn't happen. Right? That marriage, and this is kind of more recent jurisprudence from uh, from uh, tribunals and so forth, uh, if, if, and from the sacred Roman Rota, if, if that clearly happens, if the couple gets married, and they never, ever, ever have normal sexual relations, if they're always using artificial birth control, that marriage can be declared invalid because there's an intention from the beginning, we say it's, uh, we'll get to this later, uh, we say that's, that's partial simulation of marriage with an intention, an intention contra bonum prolis, against the good of offspring, right? So, um, yeah, if there's an intention uh, to have sexual relations on the one hand, but to uh, um, make sure, uh, use some artificial means to make sure that children are never conceived, that, that would be an intention against against uh, the, po the possibility of having children. On the other hand, if a couple gets married and they never have sexual relations, that would be valid. Um, they're not required to have sexual relations. To help them to be open to the possibility of having children. Well, if they were to have sexual relations, they would be open to it, but they're, they're choosing not to have sexual relations. And the classic example used in Gratian in the Middle Ages and so forth is Mary and Joseph. <laughs> but, that was a valid marriage, and they didn't have sexual relations. But, but they were certainly open to having children. <laughs> but a Jewish eyes, it wasn't a valid marriage because a Jewish, a Jewish wedding at the time, they had they had to consummate the marriage by having relations, and they never had relations. 
So would it be considered a valid marriage? Yes, it is. I can guarantee you okay. it's a valid marriage. I guarantee you. As <laughs> by You're the professor, not me. Would, I don't know. What, what Jewish scholars at the time might have said, I don't know. But I can guarantee to you, guarantee you that that was a valid marriage. I'll take your word for it. That was the most valid marriage that ever existed. That's what I thought, buddy. Nice. Yeah. I figured I'd throw it out there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the three, the three goods. All right. Permanence, uh, fidelity, and openness offering. Please know these three goods. Okay. The Augustinian goods. They, they have a way of showing up on, on tests and things. Uh, they're very, very important for you to know them. And this will come up. It should come up in your um, preparing couples for marriage. Okay. Because this is what they're striving for. You know, you want to make sure that it's going to be permanent, because a lot of couples these days don't know that that's a thing. <laughs> permanent marriages, you know. Um, and certainly fidelity, and, and again, openness to the possibility of having children. You know? uh, so it's, it's important Yeah, it's important to know all those. You, we will see later, when we get to um, various uh, grounds for a marriage being um, invalid, uh, various impediments to a valid marriage, uh, we will see what's called, I've already mentioned, simulation. And uh, one can simulate marriage totally. One can just say, one can go through emotions and not mean a word of what one is saying. You know, some people used to do this, maybe still do that for immigration purposes or to get at somebody's money and inheritance or God knows what, you know. Um, Becoming a U.S. Total citizen. Simulation. Sorry? Becoming a U.S. citizen, like yeah, the yeah, Minnesota. Exactly. Who yeah. mentioned her name, Yellen Omar. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Marrying she married her brother. brother. Yeah. So... Or it can be partial simu simulation. And this happens a lot, where a couple gets married, but they, they have chosen to be childless. Okay? Or one of them has chosen to be childless, but they're going to have sexual relations anyway. Yeah. Uh, that marriage is invalid. The, uh, it's partial simulation with an intention contra bona prolis against the good of law school. We're going to get to all that later. Okay. All right. Okay, good. Moving right along. Then, um, okay. So those are the ends of marriage. Um, so um, well, we saw the end, the ends of the ends of marriage, right? Uh, which are uh, the good of the spouses and possibly having offspring. We saw that uh, those are the ends of marriage, the purpose for which you get married. The goods of marriage, those things that are supposed to be present there, that you were sent to, right? So you get married for this purpose, for this end. But uh, as a means to that, that end, you have these three goods of marriage, right? So permanence, fidelity, openness to marriage. So the ends, the goods, the three, the three goods, okay? With me so far? And then you have the essential properties of marriage, uh, which are different from the others because, um, as, as our commentary points out, um, they are um, uh, qualities inherent in the institution of marriage itself. So if you're married, this is what it looks like. If you're married, then you have unity and you have indissolubility. Okay? There's some overlapping here. You know, unity and indissolubility. Unity overlaps with fidelity. Indissolubility overlaps with permanence. Right? Um, but these are essential properties of marriage. Unity and indissolubility. Uh, unity means an exclusive relationship. Right? So uh, obviously... You know, if someone is a polygamist, that's the, those are not valid marriages, right? So, uh, unity. Um, and um, 
if, if someone is, uh, uh, is, is fooling around, they're, they're committing a sin against unity. Um, so unity, and of course, but that could, excuse me, um, without getting things confusing, some canonists talk about that in a larger sense, you know, is a guy actually married to his job and he's just using his wife as a trophy wife, you know, that kind of thing. Um, is there true unity there or is he unified with somebody else, you know? Sometimes, um, you know, the, uh, uh, a mother-in-law or some, somebody can, can uh, so interfere in a marriage that you, you think that, you know, the party, whichever party it is, is, is tied more to the mother-in-law than the, the spouse and so forth, you know, so that um, that would be a problem with, uh, with unity. But basically, unity would mean pretty much the same thing as fidelity, right? Unity um, and indissolubility, okay, the same as permanence. So the, as I said, these kind of overlap a little bit, and, and the, uh, um, the, the, the code here doesn't speak specifically about the three Augustinian goods that we just mentioned, but those are so important to know, you just need to know them. And they're reflected in these, these different canons in different ways. Okay? So remember the essential properties of unity and indissolubility. Now, <clears throat> what makes a marriage? Um, canon 1057, the consent of the parties legitimately manifested between persons qualified by law makes marriage. No human power is able to supply this consent. Um, and then matrimonial consent is an act of the will by which a man and a woman are mutually given except each other through an irrevocable um, covenant in order to establish marriage. So first of all, what makes a marriage? What makes marriage is the consent of the parties. Okay? Uh, we'll see later what consent means, what they're consenting to, but they are the ones who give consent. Consent of the parties legitimately manifested between persons qualified by law makes marriage, and no human power is able to supply this consent. This happens sometimes. You know, you have arranged marriages, and I've, I've done any number of um, annulments based on this. That, that the, um, uh, the the parties didn't want to um, didn't want to be married, but their 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 families forced them into it, and if they had not agreed to it, then um, they, they would have been held to it. So they just had to, you know. Does anybody here, I don't want to cast this person on any, on any ethnic group, but we've had a particular problem with uh, uh, people from Albania, believe it or not. Does anybody, no one here is Albanian, are they? Okay. Um, um, I don't know if this is still going on, but um, we had an awful lot of uh, marriages uh, from people who uh, came from Albania, believe it or not, when I was in the tribunal. Uh, there were these arranged marriages. And, and typically, they came over from, from Albania. And so now we're dealing with second generation people. Uh, and the parents kept them under their thumb and wanted them uh, to marry you know, Albanians. And they would get somebody from the old country or from their circle in this country. They would choose a bride for the guy, whatever, and they would say, okay, this is the person you're going to marry. And they might meet briefly, you know, a week or so before they get married, you know, or maybe even a month or so before they get married, but they would just meet briefly. Hi, how are you? you know, we're getting married. Oh, that's nice. You know? And that's kind of how these things were arranged. I was really shocked to see this going on in our own day and age. You know? And meanwhile, the, these people who are getting married are living in the United States, and they're seeing American culture, and they don't want to get married. 
But if they don't get married, oh, the families will disown them. It'll be a whole hue and cry, so, so they, they go along with it. But they don't really consent to it. You know? uh, in this case, the parents are consenting to it, but, they, but, the, but the, uh, the bride and the groom are not. You know? So that can happen sometimes. Um, arranged marriages, whatever. You know? um, there must be true consent. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see this as we go on with the different canons. A lot of things can affect consent. Um, sometimes a person isn't capable of consent because they have deep-seated psychological problems, you know, or they, as I just mentioned, they might be forced into getting married, but they don't, they don't really want to get married, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, but the consent of the parties alone makes the marriage, um, and nothing else can supply for that. If you don't have that, you do not have a marriage. Okay. Um, and then, uh, <clears throat> let's get in 1057 number one, Canon 1057, number two, and this is classic. Um, uh, matrimonial consent, what is it? This is important to know. It's an act of the will by which a man and a woman mutually give and accept each other through an irrevoc irrevocable covenant in order to establish marriage. Now, by way of background, um, uh, sorry, I don't have my 17 code here. Um, but the, it's actually mentioned in our commentary, if you have the green book on top of page 1252 on the left-hand side, the old code um, said that uh, matrimonial consent, um, this is canon 1081 number two in the 1917 code, not this code, the 1917 code. It said matrimonial consent is an act of the will by which the parties, not the man and the woman, but the parties, um, give and accept, uh, where is it? Um, um, the, par the parties mutually give and accept the, and here's the quote on top of uh, 1252, the perpetual and exclusive right to the body ordered to act per se, act for the generation of offspring. Okay, um, that was that was that was matrimonial consent um, in the um, in the in the 17 code. Okay, you see the difference, all right? There's a huge difference. And this co this comes from it's Vatican II, but what was leading up to it? This is this was, this was developed over centuries. That uh, I remember Monsignor Bill Smith saying that um, that the theology of marriage was something that really needed a lot of work. You know, um, and there there has been a lot of work on it. Council did some great work on it. But you see the difference, okay? 1917 code, the um, matrimonial consent was um, the, um, it's an act of the will, in both cases, an act of the will by which the parties, not the man and woman, but the parties, uh, mutually um, give and accept the perpetual and exclusive right to the body, order to act per se after the generation of offspring. So it's what's given and received is the right to the body nothing else. Um, well, we hope a lot more than that, but, uh, but that was what you needed to have a valid marriage, the, the, um, the, the right to the body, okay, for act, per se, act for the generation of offspring. I, I love these euphemisms. Uh, in, in other words, you know, no kinky sex, I mean, but, uh, uh, but w at least whatever you're doing, it's got to end up be, being this, okay, act sort of per se, uh, after the generation of offspring. I'm going to, in the next class or two, I'll probably get into 
uh, Monsignor Curran's legacy. You know, the saintly Monsignor oh. Curran, the saintly guy. Did you know him at all? Yeah, no. we had him. Oh, you had him? Yeah. Wonderful guy, very funny guy, that great sense of humor, you know, gentle guy, very deeply holy guy, amazing guy, you know? Um, he would quietly give me some really, really wise spiritual advice, you know, and just, just amazing guy. He wrote his dissertation on, um, we'll get to this, what's called humano modo, a human, uh, human mode, human way, referring to um, the way um, a couple uh, has sexual intercourse, uh, as referred to in, in the Code of Canon Law. The Code of Canon Law says that for it to, for it to count, um, for marriage to be consummated, the, um, the couple must have um, sexual relations, sexual relations humano modo, okay? Which means all sorts of things that are popular now uh, don't count, okay? Um, you know, ask Clinton, you know, Bill Clinton, depends what you mean by sex. You know, so, you know. <laughs> so it has it's. the humano modo, which is this, which is acts that are um, per se apt for the generation of offspring. Okay, that's the mono motive. That's what makes um, true sexual intercourse that counts in marriage. Okay, so we're going to get to all that. This is a uh, you know a lot of sex in this course. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> you see what I'm teaching the seminarians. You know, go on and on about sex. You know, I say here we are all committed to celibacy. Did you ever think you'd spend so much time talking about sex? But it's important. So um, all right. So you see the difference, right? Matrimonial consent in the old code, it, it, it was for um, the, the right to, to the body for these um, these acts, <laughs> these acts, <laughs> uh, these acts, as, as opposed to, not as opposed to, but as taken up into this much broader definition and deeper and richer definition that's given in the 1983 code. It's an act of the will by which a man and a woman, first of all, not, not the parties anymore, but a man and a woman mutually give and accept each other, each other, through an irrevocable covenant. So there's that word covenant again, that divine contract, that divine union, right? In order to establish marriage, they give and accept each other. This is, you know, somebody's asking about uh, John Paul II, well, why don't we see him in the contrary? This is John Paul II's words, uh, wording, right? He's, he was always talking about the gift of self. Okay, that's the key to that's the key to life, is the gift of self. But especially, this is why he was so fascinated with marriage, because marriage, when it's lived out properly, uh, reflects the love of Christ for His Church, and it it it, uh, it reveals to human beings, married or not, what it is, uh, what it means to say that we are made in the image and likeness of God, and what we must do to fulfill our our humanity. It means giving the gift of self which in good marriages is something that, that, that can be something that's just awesome, you know, where a husband and wife give themselves to each other. Um, they, give themse they give themselves to each other, you know. Now this creates all sorts of headaches for canonists because suppose they're not giving themselves to each other. How do you know that they're not giving themselves to each other, you know? And we're living in a fallen world, um, you know, at what point are they not giving themselves to each other? So. Uh, if a uh, guy comes comes home from work, no, say he, say the guy's home from work, the girl comes home from work, <laughs> and uh, and she uh, and he says, you know, can 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 you cook uh, whatever that I like? And she says, no, I'm too tired. 
Well, is she not giving herself to him now? Then you know, I mean, all these things. You know, where where does where do you draw the line? And of course, you know, nobody does this perfectly except Mary and Joseph did that perfectly. You know, but um, but uh, where where do you draw the line and say there, there's nothing happening here? There, there's no gift of self here. You know, and this is what gives canonists headaches on tribunals because at what point do husband and wife stop giving themselves to each other? But that's what the the the, um, uh, the the marriage consent is. Man, the man and a woman, not just parties to a contract, but man and a woman give themselves to each other. It's not just sexual relations, but it's so much more than that. It certainly includes openness to, to uh, sexual relations, but it's so much more than that. It's the gift, the gift of self that Saint John Paul the Great was always talking about. So it's a it's a much deeper um, understanding of, of marriage. It was implicit in the old code, clearly, you know, um, but uh, it's spelled out in the new code. They mutually give it and, ex and accept each other through an irrevocable covenant. Okay, so you can't undo this this holy union uh, in order to establish <coughs> marriage. Okay, so so th again, this this canon is very important. Canon 1057. Um, Canon 1058, um, all persons who are not prohibited uh, by law can contract marriage. Okay, so there's a right to marriage, mm -hmm. a basic right to marriage. Now, we're going to see ways in which people are prohibited by law from getting married. You know? So on the one hand, there's a natural right to marriage. We have to respect that. But that doesn't mean that people um, who are not ready to get married uh, you, you can just go in and, and do their weddings, you know. Um, and this comes up all the time. You see, uh, when uh, you know priests and deacons are preparing people for marriage, you know, um, uh, and don't fall into this trap. So you're dealing with a couple. There are a lot of problems, you know. They're they're arguing arguing with each other all the time. You know, they're very very immature. Um, and you know, and this those of you who are you know, who are married, this, uh, you, you know, you have a good perspective, you can have, I hope you have a good perspective on this. And you're looking at them and you're thinking, hmm, I don't know, this doesn't look good, you know, I think they need some help before they can get married, and, and we can provide help for them, you know, we can send them to, to marriage counselors before they get married to help them grow up a little bit, or whatever it, it is, but uh, um, you're worried this isn't going to work out, or there might be other reasons why um, uh, you think it might not work out. Um, don't fall into the trap of, 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 of saying, but on the other hand, they have a natural right to get married, so I'll go ahead and do the wedding. No, no, and we're going to see this. You have not just the right, but you have the responsibility at times uh, to refuse to do a wedding uh, or to or to throw up um, hurdles for them, because what is the supreme lex? Supreme law. The supreme law. What is the supreme law? The salus. Salus animarum, remember that from the beginning of the course? The supreme elex is the salus animarum, salvation of souls. That's always the supreme law, the salvation of souls. So don't fall into this trap, um, and you will be pressured into this. I can tell you from experience, you'll be pressured into this. Oh, deacon so-and-so is giving us a hard time, he won't do the wedding, you know? Good for you, <laughs> deacon so-and-so. Good for you, you know, because that means you care about their salvation. Because more important than um, than than your um, just 
making things easy for people is you're helping them to achieve salvation. And if you see them uh, entering into a union that's going to fall apart, you have the right and responsibility to, uh, uh, to delay things and possibly just to stop things. Yeah. I had a, um, a friend, um, and he's still a good friend, who, um, this is many, many years ago now, many years ago, um, who was engaged to this woman, um, was having, and she's very cute, I remember, um, and, and they were, um, but they were having a lot of problems, you know, uh, and they kept arguing and so on and so forth. So they came in one day, two of them together came in to tell me, because we're getting ready for the wedding, but you know, just the early stages, they came in to tell me, well, the wedding's off, you know, because we, we're always arguing and so forth. And then it became something out of, out of a sitcom, you know? And he said, yeah, because she said this, and she said, but I didn't mean that, and you didn't understand what I said, and what I read about was that, and he said, oh, did you mean that, but oh, okay, well, if I know that, and so the tears started, and then they started hugging, and then they turned to me and, and, and said, okay, we're gonna get married. And I looked at them and said, no, you're not. I had to, and he was a good friend. No, you're not, you know. Um, I, I said, I'll work with you, you know, if you wanna, um, you know, we'll get, get a marriage counselor or somebody, but as of this moment, no, you're not, you know. Sometimes you have to do that, you know. So um, it's important because, uh, yeah, people's salvation is at stake. So yes, people have the, um, the natural right to get married, but that doesn't mean you have to do the wedding of everybody who comes to see you. You, ha you have to make judgments, and we're gonna, uh, you're going to see the judgments you have to make as we go through these canons, right? So, but generally speaking, all persons who are not prohibited by law can contract marriage. Okay. Um, now, Canon 1059. Now, we have a little bit of time. Um, this is really going to confuse you now. <laughs> After the question we had on, about Canon 1108 and ecclesiastical law, this will really confuse you. Um, Canon 1059. Even if only one party is Catholic, the marriage of Catholics is governed not only by divine law, but also by canon law, without prejudice to the competence of civil authority concerning the merely civil effects of the same marriage. Yeah, so we respect civil law, generally speaking, right? Um, but, uh, but, but it says the marriage of Catholics is governed not only by divine law, but, but also by canon law. Now, to make matters even more confusing, because I know you're not confused enough, the 1917 code didn't make as clear a distinction about ecclesiastical laws, and it tended to say that um, the laws in this code apply to all the baptized. So if, if you were a uh, baptized non-Catholic and you're breaking Catholic ecclesiastical laws, you know, you're committing sins and all, all sorts of, it was, it was a whole big mess, you know? Um, but, uh, when it came to marriage, though, even the 17 Code had an exception about marriage laws. You know, so it it it, it acknowledged that that uh, marriage laws did not apply um, to uh, baptized non-Catholics. But there was a there was confusion, and this is part of what you guys are encountering, um, just intuitively because it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around this. But also, uh, it has been the case, and I dare say you might find an older priest here and there who will still uh, not understand this. Um, there used to be the feeling that, yes, um, non-Catholics are bound by Catholic ecclesiastical law, uh, and they're, they're, all, they're all heretics, they're all excommunicated, they're all just bad, you know? And that was kind of the attitude, you know? So, um, so there's confusion about that uh, among older priests. 
But the old code did make an exception about marriage uh, specifically, and it said that uh, non-Catholic Christians, you know, baptized non-Catholics, are not bound by Catholic marriage, ecclesiastical marriage laws. And the new code is very clear, okay? The new code, again, Canon 1059, um, it's, it refers to Catholics, and only Catholics, right? So even if only one party is Catholic, the marriage of Catholics is governed not only by divine law, but also by canon law, etc. Okay? All right, so it's important to remember that. The marriage of Catholics, um, even if only one party is Catholic, uh, the, the marriage is governed by, by canon law. Okay? All right, I think we can, uh, yeah. I think we can conclude there for now. So let me know um, about the grading. I think those of you who did the, 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 uh, the test online, I think you're going to find actual number letter grades there. And they will not be the grades that are turned in finally. Uh, if, you're, if you're taking it um, if just as an auditor, you're a deacon candidate, you're just auditing. The final grade that will be turned in after you've done all the other requirements will be a, you know, the P, the whatever it is, P, P, minus, whatever it is. Um, that, that grading system. The number grading is just really for my, for, for you to, to help you a little bit, but also for me to, um, to remember what I'm calculating the final P plus whatever grade it is. Okay? Good. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you. you.